0: welcome everyone. We are so glad that you're with us today. Smyrna campus, we love you guys. We're glad that you're with us. All those connecting with us online, we're we're just thrilled that you can still stay connected with us that way. We want you to continue to connect and grow and serve as you connect online and with life groups and Bible studies, different things that we have going on that you can be a part of. We are in a series called Rebuilding, Five Key Lessons from Nehemiah. And so far in this series, we have talked about Uh, the necessity of preparation, the value of participation. And this week, we're looking at the reality of opposition. One of the mistakes a lot of Christ followers make is they think, well, when I finally give my life to the Lord, everybody's going to be behind me in this. Everybody's going to rally around and support and encourage. It's going to be a great thing. And it's true when you're connected to a church family, there is a group that will rally around you and support you, and that's a good thing. But it's also true that there's still an enemy against you out there. And that enemy will look for every opportunity, every person, every situation that he can use to oppose you as you seek to get your life where it needs to be in your walk with Christ, you know, in your relationship with the Father. And in this series on rebuilding, what we're talking about is is rebuilding even better than it was before the church, but also we are the church, so it means our own personal relationship with God through Jesus. So if the church is going to be rebuilt better, it means our relationship to God must be rebuilt even better than it was before, stronger, healthier than it was before. So knowing the reality of opposition, it means there's some steps we need to take so that we can be strong and consistent and keep growing in our rebuilding efforts and not let the opposition win the battle against us. When Nehemiah made the decision to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, his immediate response was prayer and repentance, right? He grieved overhearing the news about how bad things were there. But then when he committed himself and started the process, right up front, he had some great success, didn't he? He enjoyed the favor of the king that he was the cupbearer to. And the king granted his request to allow him to go rebuild the wall. The king uh, gave supplies to, uh, made sure he had supplies lined up to use for the rebuilding. The king sent letters of introduction through the countries that, that he would have to travel through that might oppose him. He, The king made sure that he sent army uh, reinforcements, some soldiers with him to give him safe passage so that he could arrive there and do the job. It looked like everything was just clicking, clicking, clicking. Everything's falling in place. Everything's running smoothly. We're going to get this wall rebuilt. It's going to be great. But before they even started the process of rebuilding the wall, opposition rose up to it. I mean, before the first rock was laid on another rock before they 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 cleaned up any of the rubble before any of the teams were formed to rebuild the wall already opposition was rising up let's pick up if you got your bibles there let's look at nehemiah we're going to look at several different verses here we're going to start with nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10 we're going back there to the time Uh, Right after he decides to go to Jerusalem and he gets permission from the king and all that's done and and he goes to start the process of rebuilding the wall and in chapter 2 and verse 10 here we find that already there's opposition when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this all right this plan now likely they heard about it because of the letters that the king had done to give him introduction as he traveled there and arrived there. Those letters of introduction from the king, giving the king support and care and provision for him and telling the people to welcome him and, and, and uh, to support what he was doing. Most likely they either got the letter read to them or word had spread to them about the letter and the plans of what was going on here. So says, when they heard about this, they were very disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare Of the Israelites. Now again, we don't know exactly their role or their position in the area, but we know they saw themselves as part of the ruling class there, as as the people who controlled the area. And they didn't like the idea that these Israelites were going to get help and and in some way that would make them stronger and and provided for in a better way than maybe they were. They were seeing this as a threat to them. See, here's the thing. When we get serious about stepping up for Christ, there are many people that will love that and support that. But there are many people that will see that as a threat. It's a threat to them. It's it's almost like you're saying to them in their mind, I'm getting my life together and you're not. You know, I'm getting to where I need to be, but it's going to make them look bad if they don't do that, too. And so their natural response would be to oppose you. If you've ever tried to do something that the rest of your family wasn't really on board with, you can kind of understand. Let's say you've decided I'm going to eat healthier than I've been eating. But the rest of your family hasn't made that decision yet. Right? So you start making different choices on food. And, and you're doing it for your own health, and you may even be encouraging your family, come along with me in this journey, let's do this together. But not all of them have been convinced yet that this is necessary, that it's even good. And so even though they love you, and, and, and really they want what's best for you, they're not yet at that place that you are, so they, they aren't really on board. And when they're not really on board, they might do things maybe without evil intent, that hurts your effort to eat healthy now. Like, you know, you fix a meal that you think is going to be a good, healthy meal, and they, they're not exactly complaining, but they're not exactly enjoying it and thanking you for the meal either, right? Uh, there's just little subtle things they're doing that show they're not really supporting this. These enemies weren't subtle at all. That They were just as plain and clear and upfront about their opposition as they could be and these aren't family members remember remember when Nehemiah responded to them he said you don't have any historic claim to Jerusalem you don't have any part in it that's one reason you're not supporting this they weren't part of the of the family I think one of the mistakes we the church make in dealing with the non-christian world is we sometimes expect them to act and live like Christians and they're not I, I mean we can't expect them who act like Christians when they don't have Christ. You you could do that temporarily. You could put on a little show for a short period of time, but you can't consistently walk like a Christian without Christ, without the presence of the Spirit of God in you. You can't do it. Even with the Spirit, it's hard, right? Those people without the Spirit can't do it, no matter how hard they try. But we're acting like they ought to be on board with us on everything when they're not Christians. Why would they be on board with us on everything? We shouldn't even expect that. That's why we should understand that opposition is going to be there. It's real. It's going to happen to everybody. And then in verse uh, 19 of chapter 2. They stu- they, the people all agreed he's there. They've got. He's, uh, Nehemiah's told them about the support of the king and how God's providing everything. And they had already said, all right, let's start rebuilding. So they began the good work. So even knowing, all right, even though these other guys were already upset and mad about it, they went ahead and started. And verse 19, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they ask. Are you rebelling against the king? So already they're questioning their motives and questioning what they're doing and mocking what they're doing. So the opposition is strong right on the front end of the project. As soon as they're starting the work, already there's opposition there. Well, then I want to look a little later on, uh, chapter 3, you know, they've got all those work crews out there working, 42 separate work crews. And then in chapter 4, we'll begin with verse 1, they're they're progressing now. You can actually see the wall going up now at this point. But it's still early on. They're, they're still... Uh, not not very far along but you can see now this is serious they aren't just talking about it this wall is going up and in verse four uh, chapter four verse one when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall he became angry and was greatly incensed he ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of uh, Samaria he said what are those feeble Jews doing Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Can't you just hear the voice dripping with sarcasm? But here's something else the opposition will almost always do. They will recruit others to come along with them to oppose you. Almost always. You see, they feel better about themselves if they can get some other people to criticize and complain and ridicule like they're criticizing and complaining and ridiculing if it was just them they would begin to feel kind of stupid right I mean you you know if you're the only one saying those things and acting that way you begin to stand out like a sore thumb like maybe you're the problem not the other people right but if you can get some people to go along with you convince them to be on your team right against the others then it makes you feel more like, okay, I'm on the right track here to make fun of them and ridicule them. It's okay for me to do that because other people are now in agreement with me on that. So he's trying to get these other people on board with him. And I love the sarcasm continuing in verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said this. What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Now, you have to understand the, the ridicule here. They're, they're, they're taking these stones, probably reusing a lot of the stones that were there in the rubble to rebuild the wall. They're right there. And the stones would probably still be fine to use. They may need to be cleaned up a little bit and smoothed over or whatever. But they would be okay to be reused. So they're out there getting these stones and clearing out rubble and putting the stones back in place. And the wall, uh, mixing up the mortar and getting the stones in place to get the wall back where it needs to be, piece by piece, rebuilding the wall. And they were probably feeling pretty good about it until they said this. If even a fox climbed up on that wall, it would crumble. You have to understand, a fox is not very big. doesn't weigh very much. And they're saying if even a little low light fox climbed up on that wall, it would just fall apart. Now, remember, the work crews are not... Construction crews, these are people that worked other jobs, that had other businesses that were not skilled laborers in that kind of work. So already, they probably are concerned, am I doing this right? Is this going to be okay? And then they have these people making fun of them in the process of how feeble their efforts are in rebuilding the wall. Here's my point. If we're going to really stand out in our rebuilding for the Lord his church, our own personal lives. Remember, we are the church. That's where it's got to start, getting our lives where it need, where they need to be and then working together to rebuild the church in a stronger, more powerful way than it was before so that we can have even greater impact for the kingdom. We are going to face opposition. So when you know that, when you know that in advance, there's some ways for you to respond to that knowledge that will help you be able to endure and have success even in the face of opposition. So we're going to look today at three principles to overcoming opposition. Just very quickly, three principles to overcoming opposition. The first principle is the principle of preparation. Preparation. It's always best to prepare in advance when you know there's going to be opposition anyway. I'll give you a hypothetical situation just off the top of my head here. Let's say you are part of a football team from a state like uh, Georgia okay, uh, just hypothetically, and you know you've got this game against a team from another state, let's just pick one, Alabama, okay, let's just say Alabama, and, and you know there's this game, this contest you're going to have, and, and you're going to play on a certain day at a certain time at a certain place, and you got to go there to play, don't you think it would be good to prepare well, knowing you're going to have the opposition there working against you? Now, it's not just enough to prepare for what you want to do. You have to prepare for what they're going to do. And part of the preparation could maybe you look at history and say, well, in the past, hypothetically speaking, this team uh, had allowed us to take a lead in the first half, but they've always come back to win in the second half. All right, Let's just say, theoretically, that's how it's worked before. And so you prepare, and the first half you do well, but the second half you haven't prepared as well as you needed to, and it becomes obvious. In the second half, right? You see, in our Christian life, it's great to start well. But the key, the real goal, is to finish well. It's to go all the way through the process. Even in the face of the opposition, that's going to be there. You know it's going to be there. So when you decide to follow Christ, you decide that knowing there's going to be opposition. So preparing is the best thing to do to start with, to get ready to face the opposition. Many of you have seen this sign probably in different businesses. I saw it the first time in my life. Uh, I was in a a print shop, a a place that did printing for churches and other businesses. And we were at the last minute trying to get some things printed up. And and I ran in there with my stuff ready, you know, to get this printed up for us. And the sign said, poor planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on our part. (laughs) Made me feel bad. Because there I was last minute trying to get something done, right? I could have prepared a little sooner. I could have prepared better to give more time for what needed to be done. That's a good reminder, isn't it? That poor planning on our part does not constitute an emergency on God's part. Now, God's always there. He, he's there for us. But don't you think he would like for us to prepare better, prepare well for the opposition that we're going to be facing? Instead of at the last meeting, at last minute, asking God to work a miracle for us to get us out of the problem that we've got now, wouldn't it be better to have been prepared in advance, instead of having to, to do that last minute? Look at Nehemiah's preparation in chapter two. If you go back remember he had already gone to the king he had already uh gotten all the provisions to get there and some supplies to get started with and all that but notice in verse 11 of chapter 2 it says when I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days all right so he's getting to know the lay of the land again he hasn't been there uh or maybe his whole life but certainly not recently had he been there and he he'd grown up in a foreign country right so he he's He probably doesn't even remember much about the place. So he's there for a few days. Then it says, verse 12, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So did he start rallying the troops without a plan? No, he he hasn't even told anybody there yet what he's going to be doing because he understood the importance of preparation for what he was trying to do for the Lord, for how he wanted to honor God. He knew he needed to prepare well and plan well for what he was wanting to do. So verse 13, by night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate examining the wall of Jerusalem. Wouldn't you like to be on the team that was uh, assigned the rebuilding of the dung gate? Somebody had to do it, right? (laughs) So he's out there examining all the stuff that's out there, all the problems that they've got to deal with, okay? Uh, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priest or the nobles or officials or any other, uh, others who would be doing the work. So before he assembled the team and challenged them to do the job, before he led them and forming those groups to rebuild their sections of the wall, he took the time to look at the situation, study it carefully, and make a plan that he felt like God would want him to make to get the job done. I'm convinced that we as Christians could have a lot better success rate in facing Satan, our greatest opponent, if we did a better job preparing for the opposition. We wait until we're in the middle of the struggle and we cry out to God to save us. But we haven't spent time in prayer ahead of time. We haven't spent as much time in the word as we should have been spending in the word. We've been neglecting our support of the work of the kingdom and being involved in using our gifts. And we've not been fellowshipping with other brothers and sisters in Christ consistently And yet we walk out there onto the battlefield every day without that preparation in place. And we wonder why we're not more successful. We wonder why we stumble and fall so often. The Bible says to put on the full armor of God, right? The whole armor of God. Get yourself ready for the battle. Don't walk out there into the battle without the armor in place that we need to have. Careful preparation always beats frantic desperation, and it depends on quality information. You've got to have the right information to do battle well against Satan. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, did he have the right information to respond to Satan? Yes. You know how he responded? He quoted Scripture right back to the face of Satan every single time. He had put that scripture into his heart and into his mind, so he had prepared for the temptation before he got out there into the wilderness. And we walk out into the wilderness around us every day as Christ followers without the preparation we need to have. In 1 Peter 3, Peter tells us this, beginning in verse 13 Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Okay, so he says you don't have to be afraid of the enemy as you go out as Christians if you do this. First, you've got to revere Christ as Lord. In other words, you've already submitted yourself to his lordship in your life. That's where you start getting prepared is, is making your relationship right with Christ. But then he adds this. Always be prepared this is not Boy Scout code here. This is scripture. This is for followers of Christ. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Which means, where do you have to put God's word? Not on the shelf at your house, not on the coffee table in your living room, but in your heart and in your mind, so that you are prepared to answer rightly those who would question why you have faith in Christ, why you would choose to follow him. Be prepared all the time for that. But he says, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It's not enough just to know the right answers. It's also important to be prepared to answer in the right way with gentleness and respect toward people. See, that's part of preparing, is getting so ready for the attacks that even when they come, you don't react in an uncontrolled anger toward the people that are opposing you. Now, all of us get angry at opposition to Christianity. The sin is not getting angry. The sin is allowing the anger to cause you to do things you shouldn't be doing, to say things you shouldn't be saying, to respond in ways you shouldn't respond. I get angry too, but I know if I lash out in anger in my response, I'm going to do more damage to the name of Christ than I am good for the name of Christ. Regardless of where you stand politically, the uh, Supreme Court uh, judge nomination, uh, Amy, uh, I can't remember her name now, Uh, Barrett, Amy Comey Barrett, Uh, they just call her ACB now, I think, ACB, went into the hearings knowing that she was going to be attacked. She knew it in advance. In fact, anybody could have been nominated for either side, and they would have gone into that hearing knowing they're going to be attacked. But that's, that's what happens in those hearings. She's a good woman. She's a good godly woman. She's got a great character. She's got great reputation. She's got a phenomenal education and experience. All those things are there. She's she's done the things you're supposed to do, but she knew in those hearings she was going to be attacked. The thing that impressed me the most, regardless of what political party was doing the nominating, it didn't matter. The thing that impressed me the most was her demeanor through all the attacks. She kept her calm. She kept her professionalism. She answered quickly and easily and distinctly all the things that needed to be answered. And she did it without notes, which was amazing, right? You talk about preparation. She had no notes with her at all. They asked her to show the notes that she had, and she held up a blank pad that was on the, on the podium there, right? And they asked, what does it say on it? And it says, it's got letterhead that says U.S. Senate on it. That's all that was on it, okay? It's amazing the preparation that she had done. But that was all life preparation. That wasn't just, you know, a few hours before the hearing. She had been preparing her whole life to be able to respond to people that way who were going to oppose her. Now, whether you support her or not, it's the nominee. That's not the point. The point is she understood opposition was going to be there, and she prepared the way you're supposed to prepare. We know as Christ followers, opposition is going to be there. Let's do a better job preparing to answer well the opposition that we're going to face without anger, without attacks, even if they attack us. That's going to be the key to being able to have impact and influence. So the first step then is preparation. The second step is, is inspiration. I saw this quote a while back, many years ago, and I really like it. It said, nothing of consequence happens apart from inspiration. Nothing of consequence happens apart from inspiration. You look back at all the great accomplishments in history, whether it's wars that have been won or or great achievements in literature or art or whatever it is, there's been inspiration behind it, something that inspires Inspired the person, the individual, or the group, or, or the nation that accomplished that great thing. They were inspired to do what they did. And as Christ followers, if we're going to consistently walk well with Christ and be the example we need to be and, and have victory over the opposition, we're, it's going to have to be uh, that we make sure in our lives we have consistent inspiration coming into our hearts and into our minds. And that's one of the greatest reasons I believe God has given us his word and he's given us his spirit and he's given us his church is so that we could have that consistent presence of inspiration in our lives because we need to be inspired to hang on and do what God is calling us to do In Nehemiah 2 let's look at verse 17 and 18 remember he, he went in and looked at everything and got a plan together verse 17 it says then I said to them You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. All right? So the inspiration started with, here's the real news. This is what we're really dealing with. This is not easy. But then he adds this. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And then they said, all right, let us start rebuilding. You see, he took the time to inspire them before they started the work. Now, here's what you have to know. If you know the whole story, and we're going to be looking over the next week or two at at more of the rest of the story here over the next couple of weeks. But, But here's what happened. All along the way, the opposition didn't go away. It kept coming back, and all along the way, he kept coming back to them and reminding them and inspiring them and encouraging them because you have to have consistent inspiration to hang on when the opposition doesn't stop, when the opposition doesn't go away. You need to have consistent inspiration coming in to offset it. He kept reminding them that God was in it. That this was not Nehemiah's plan. This was not their plan. This was not uh, something that they just came up with on their own. That this was something God was in. And if God is in it, that's inspiring, right? This is not something that, that, that is just going to be by man's will and man's power. This is going to be undergirded by God's presence and power and provision. And that's inspiring. We need to know as the church today, what God has called us to do, God is in it. And yes, there's real opposition. And yes, it seems like the opposition wins some battles along the way. And it seems like they may be growing stronger in their opposition. But who's in it? God's in it. And if God's in it, there is no power greater than that. If God is in it, there is no force that can stop it. If God is in it, the opposition cannot win. Period. And when you know that, that inspiration keeps you going. That's why I love the, a reminder from Hebrews, Hebrews 10, verse 23. Listen to these words. Talking to the church, right? Christ followers. Here's what he says. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. All right, so he starts with reminding us there's a reason to hold on, even in the face of opposition. Here's the reason. The reason is the one The one who promised is what? What's the word he uses? Faithful. The one who's made these promises about eternal life, about never leaving us or forsaking us, about providing for us everything we need. He is faithful. So you can count on that. And then he says in verse 24, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But instead, we need to be encouraging one another, he says. And all the more as you see the day approaching. That day is the day Jesus comes back and the ultimate victory is secured in him. We're closer to that day now than we've ever been before. And every day that passes, we're one day closer to that event. If you believe that God keeps his promise, that that event is going to happen, that Jesus is going to win above Satan, that he's going to be able to give us the eternal life that he promised for us in a place better than we could ever imagine. If we believe God is faithful to keep his promises, then we need to be inspired to hold on and stay faithful and keep going as his people. We need that consistent inspiration in our lives. And he says, here's how you're going to get it. You're going to remember God and God's, Character and God's provision, but then here's what you need to do you need to encourage one another, you need to inspire one another. One of the worst mistakes we make as Christ followers, I believe, is when one of our brothers and sisters in Christ stumbles or struggles and falls, sometimes we either forsake them or we attack them, we just leave them on their own. They messed up, right? And so now. Now, because they messed up, they don't have the support around them anymore, the encouragement around them anymore, the, the, the building up that they need to have, the restoration process that needs to happen. They don't have that. I'm not saying that, that all of you do that I'm, or that, 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 that it's been present or prevalent at Lakeshore. That's not what I'm saying. But church-wide, overall, I think we, we have sometimes made that mistake where we, we write people off when they mess up instead of being there for them. That's the encouragement and the support for them that they need to have. Don't get me wrong, there needs to be accountability, yes. And there needs to be a call to repentance, absolutely, when somebody has gone into sin. There needs to be that. But there needs to be the presence of the encouragement of brothers and sisters in Christ around you when you're struggling. There needs to be that inspiration that comes from knowing your family is still there for you and will not let you go without a fight so we need to continue encouraging each other and that leads to the third thing and that's anticipation anticipation while the enemies were predicting the worst Nehemiah was expecting the best you see the enemies are saying ah this wall is so bad even a fox could climb up on it and it would crumble this is awful you're never going to get it done you're never going to be able to complete the job. It's, it's not even worth making the effort, guys. You, you, you feeble Jews, right? Name-calling, ridicule, mocking. I love Nehemiah 2 in verse 20. After the first attack and questioning of what they were doing, Nehemiah answers the enemies this way. I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Do you hear any doubt there in what Nehemiah says? Do you hear any cowering and fear in the face of the enemy? No. But Nehemiah doesn't say, we're so strong you can't do anything about it. Is that what he said? We are so powerful. We've got such great knowledge. When I've, got, I've made a good plan, so I know we're going to be successful. Is that what Nehemiah said? No. He said the God of heaven will give us success. He reminds his enemies that what's being done is being done in the power of God himself. And the church In America and around the world in the face of a pandemic in the face of of division in their country in the face of of struggle whatever it is and marriages or or finances or whatever we're struggling with in the face of any opposition God has promised that he will give us success as his people it all comes down to deciding do you trust God or not because if you trust God If you really trust God, really believe in God, then you can anticipate success. The way God describes success. Not the way the world describes success, but the way God describes success. They believed in the power and the presence of God. And because of that, they knew that if what they were doing was the will of God, they would be successful in it. What modern day American Christians sometimes confuse is we make success about, well, if God really gives me success, then I'll make a lot of money and I'll have that job that I want to have and that house and that car and all of that stuff. That's success. No, that's the American dream. And that's not evil if you keep it in the right perspective, but that's not what God calls success. You can write this down. If you want to know the definition of success in Scripture, you can write this down. It's to hear these words at the end of your life. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's success. If you can get to the end of your life and hear God say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, you have been successful. More than anything else, those are the words I want to hear at the end of my life not great car man isn't that great you had that car that car will be destroyed by fire if it's not already rusted away great house man that house will crumble and fall and be burned up that's not great success well done good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your Lord that success better than anything else you could ever have accomplished in your life and it's only by the grace of God that you could hear those words and I could hear those words but what a great accomplishment in life to get to the end and have God say well done good and faithful servant in Ephesians 3 verse 14 Paul speaks of of God's presence and power and provision and how we need to respond to it this way he says for this reason I kneel before the Father, who's from uh, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. And then he adds this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work in us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen Nehemiah kept reminding those people of what God had already done and what God had promised to do and that he would give them success so they weren't relying on their own strength They weren't relying on their own power. They weren't relying on what the world could give them. They were relying on God's power and presence and provision. I can remember in the Old Testament, another section in Deuteronomy, when Moses is leading the people to the promised land that God said he was going to have for them. He was going to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, right? A great place that God was going to give them. But, All the way to the promised land, they faced opposition after opposition after opposition. Struggle after struggle after struggle. Hard thing after hard thing after hard thing. But you know what Moses did? In fact, somebody counted 16 times Moses said this to them as they faced the struggles. Remember what God did for you already. Remember what God did for you already. How do you know you can count on God to be faithful? Remember what God did already for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we've been reminded today from Nehemiah's example of of the reality of opposition. If we're going to honor you, if we're going to live for you, we are going to face opposition. There is going to be struggle. There are days where it's going to be harder than others. Days where there's going to be great joy and excitement. And sometimes the days of struggle seem longer and harder and seems like there's no end. And we're going to be tempted to give up and give in to the struggle. And when we're facing those times, Father, it is so important for us to remember To remember what you've already done for your people throughout the ages. And right now to remember more than ever before. The greatest example of love and sacrifice that has ever, ever happened in the world. We need to remember right now what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.